Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce you, your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Caroline Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Metastatic Triple Negative Breast Cancer. It's part one of living with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And today's program is a collaborative or a partnership, actually a little partnership with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And you'll be hearing more um, about the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation later in the program. Um, so just to remind you of that. Um, today's program is made possible by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo, a grant from Genentech, and an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc. I really want to thank um, them, and I want to particularly thank the, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation for their remarkable support of this program today and these series. We've been doing a whole series of Triple Negative Breast Cancer. Now, before I introduce, and actually, I just want to say a few things about the participants on the call today. We have over 245 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. Um, and then we also have a number of international participants. And I just want to read the countries because it's really rather impressive, the number of countries that we have um, involved in the program today listening. Um, Argentina, Bangladesh, Canada, Colombia, Denmark, East Africa, India, Iraq, Ireland, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, Sweden, Thailand, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global, it is a global call as well. And now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Kate Lathrop. And Dr. Lathrop is Associate Professor, Division of Hematology and Oncology, UT Health San Antonio Breast Medical Oncology, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, Assistant Dean of Undergraduate Research, Long School of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio, Program Director, Medical Oncology and Hematology Fellowship Program, UT Health San Antonio, and Program Director, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And Dr. Lathrop will be addressing updates on the treatment of triple negative breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, novel treatment therapies, and clinical trial updates, how research offers new treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lathrop. Yes, uh, thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate um, all the people from around the world having such a great interest in, in this program. So as mentioned, um, we have a lot of broad topics, and I'll, I'll try to give an overview of, of these things in, in a short period of time. So the first thing I wanted to touch on is breast cancer care during uh, the COVID pandemic, which obviously everybody involved in taking care of patients um, had their own struggles during this time period, both professionally and personally. 
But from a, a research standpoint, I wanted to point out one recent article that was published in the Journal of Chemotherapy um, that I think is a very insightful um, take on some things that we actually, you know, had to face in our practice. And so this is a survey that was actually done out of Italy where they surveyed 90 oncologists that were involved uh, significantly in caring for patients with metastatic breast cancer. And when they were asked a really simple question, did you have to interrupt your chemotherapy administration for your elderly patients, which they defined as at least 70 years old that had metastatic breast cancer, 40% said yes, that they almost always had to interrupt chemotherapy during the pandemic. And a third interrupted them on a, on a case-by-case basis. So only less than 10% of oncologists responded that they did not have to interrupt chemotherapy. And since this is on triple negative metastatic breast cancer discussion, obviously chemotherapy is a large part of what we do. Um, they were also asked if they had to change the type of chemotherapy they were administering during the COVID pandemic. And 45% um, went from a typical polychemotherapy regimen to a monochemotherapy regimen, and 10% uh, chose to do dose reductions due to the concern for immunosuppression. And about 45% of oncologists responded that they tried to switch to an oral version of chemotherapy instead of IV chemotherapy due to the risk of coming into the clinic. So obviously this would impact the efficacy of, of some of the regimens that we use. So I think it's still to be determined how these changes in our practice actually affect things like recurrence rates and how long women stay on therapy, but there was certainly a big shift uh, on, on our care delivery mechanism over the pandemic. So the next topic I was asked to cover is, is what I feel a very broad but very important topic for triple negative breast cancer in the metastatic setting, and that's novel therapies. So as many of you know, the backbone of our treatments for triple negative breast cancer really have been chemotherapy for a very, very long time. And it's exciting for those of us who treat a lot of women and men with triple negative breast cancer in the metastatic setting that we have lots of new therapies available to us now. And in fact, those new therapies are accelerating. As somebody who spends a lot of time uh, planning uh, a conference focused on breast cancer, it's exciting to see all the new therapies that are, that are coming in and being submitted for presentation at the conferences. So I wanted to speak about one specific thing, and that's called an antibody drug conjugate, which some of you on the call might be familiar with. And the one that's the most prominent right now in triple negative breast cancer is called suxetuzumab, which is currently approved in the second line setting for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And what a antibody drug conjugate is, it's a novel way of designing and delivering chemotherapy. So it involved what's, what's called a humanized antibody, and in the case of suxetuzumab, that is to a receptor which is called trope 2. Trope 2 is expressed on, on triple negative breast cancer in, um, in a ubiquitous way, so it's very common. And then it has a linker which attaches a um, cytotoxic chemotherapy agent, in this case it's called SN38, to that antibody. So what this does is it's kind of like smart chemotherapy. You take your antibody, it connects right to your receptor, which in this case is called trope 2, 
and it delivers the chemotherapy right to the cancer cells, but it also delivers it to a few of the cells in the surrounding area. So you also get a, a little bit of a bystander effect in that you can affect what's called the, the tumor microenvironment. So by using this type of technology, you not only target the cancer cells specifically, so you potentially can have fewer side effects, but you also target the cancer microenvironment, which we know is becoming a, a more and more important aspect of treating cancers. The other really important thing that um, is happening in triple negative breast cancer in the novel therapeutics is really utilizing immunotherapy. So now first-line treatment for patients who have uh, something called a pdl one enhanced triple negative breast cancer is to utilize immunotherapy. That immunotherapy is called pembrolizumab. So that's become first-line therapy for, for patients that have that type of breast cancer. And the nice thing about immunotherapy is that some people really are what we call exceptional responders. So those are patients who stay on therapy for a really long time, uh, months and months, in the absence of having to also give chemotherapy. So that's an exciting uh, treatment option for, for many of our patients in the triple negative setting. And finally, with the last few minutes that I have, um, I was asked to talk about clinical trials and the potential that clinical trials have for improving um, the care for patients with triple negative breast cancer. And the one trial that I really want to highlight is actually not in patients that have a diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer, but it's for patients who have triple negative breast cancer but they're at high risk for becoming metastatic. And that trial was presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium last year um, by Dr. Nick Turner, and it's called the C-TRAC trial. And what's so interesting about this trial is it took 45 patients who had high-risk triple-negative breast cancer, so clinical um, things that made them at risk of developing metastatic disease, like advanced stage or having not responded well to the therapies that we give uh, for patients in, in that setting. And they selected those patients, and they actually started looking for what's called circulating tumor DNA. So looking for specific mutations that these patients' tumors had that they could then detect by a very simple blood drop, only removing about five milliliters or five cc's of blood. And they did this uh, for a cohort of patients, about 45 patients were on this trial. And of those patients, they were able to find nine who had circulating tumor cell DNA. But when they did CT scans or bone scans, the typical way that we might be able to detect metastatic breast cancer, those scans appeared normal. And of those patients, then those patients were offered to start on therapies that we usually just reserve in the metastatic setting. In this particular case, it was pembrolizumab, which is immunotherapy. So this trial really wasn't, um, the goal was not to see whether we could uh, treat patients a certain way or change anything like survival, but really the goal was to see if we could potentially find 
a, a marker in the blood that would let us know which patients were going to be at very high risk of having their breast cancer recur and then really start treatment earlier and try to prevent that recurrence. So um, I know that was a lot of topics, but uh, I think I was able to stay within my, my time and I'll of course be on the line to take questions uh, after the other speakers. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lathrop. That was really outstanding and really set the tone for today's program, set the context for our program today. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Stellar presentation. And our next speaker is Dr. Ann Blyse. And Dr. Blyse is Professor of Medicine and Division Director, University of Minnesota Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Transplantation, Director of Cancer Survivorship Services and Translational Research, Masonic Cancer Center, member Masonic Cancer Center, section lead medical oncology, hematologist oncologist, past chair American Society of Clinical Oncology's Cancer Survivorship Committee, member executive board Global Cardio Oncology Society, associate editor JACC Cardio Oncology, and section editor Hemonc Today on Survivorship. And Dr. Blaise will be addressing Biomarkers, diagnostic testing, and genomics, why they are important, why they are so important, the role of precision medicine in improving treatment decisions, and sequencing of treatments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Blas. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Um, it's wonderful to hear Dr. Lathrop and her discussion about the CTREC trial. I think we're all really excited to um, continue to build off that as we think about biomarkers and how do we use tests, for example, in the blood um, to really look at whether or not somebody's responding to treatment. Um, so she mentioned one of the biomarkers that we oftentimes think about with future work, and that is the circulating tumor DNA. But what about today? I think circulating tumor DNA is something that is part of our clinical trials. It's not really ready for prime time if you walked into the clinic today. But there are other things that we're doing when patients walk into the clinic and are undergoing treatment or have a new diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer. First, I would say we do a lot of testing, uh, looking at different biomarkers and genomics actually on the tumor itself. So we heard a little bit earlier about immunotherapy um, and some of the uses of it. We can actually look um, at the pathology specimens themselves and look at something called tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. This actually looks as a predictor of who may respond really well uh, to immunotherapy. Similarly, in looking at the different trials like Keynote 355, um, these actually looked at a combined positive score or PDL1 staining within the cells themselves. So a type of biomarker that's actually in the tumor specimen itself for patients who had PDL1 overexpression with a combined positive score over 10, they were much more likely to respond to pembrolizumab-based immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy. The other place that we see immunotherapy effective is when patients have a high tumor mutational burden. So when cancers um, are growing and they tend to develop more mutations with the proliferation or the high growth, we can actually measure tumor mutation burden. And those who have a high score are also more likely to benefit from immunotherapy. 
I think there's a few other things when we think about biomarkers and genomics that we look at in the tumors themselves. One of those is called microsatellite stability testing, which is another way that tumors themselves um, grow and repair. Um, and similar to a BRCA mutation where a patient who has a BRCA deficient cell, their DNA repair mechanisms are impaired, which can cause um, these cells to be very sensitive to medications like immunotherapy in the case of microsatellite instability and PARP inhibitors for those who have a BRCA mutation. When I think about the role of precision medicine in triple negative breast cancer and how are we actually improving our treatment decisions, I think it's important to reflect on a couple different things. We heard a little bit about the antibody drug conjugate, um, sacatuzumab govotecan. This past year, another antibody drug conjugate called trastuzumab um, deruxtecan um, is actually an effective therapy um, for those who have low HER2 expression. And there's a very a small subset of patients who historically we called triple negative or HER2 negative, where actually when we do additional testing, we can see very low levels of HER2 expression. These are not situations where somebody's benefits from high doses of Herceptin that many of our patients have heard about. Um, but the antibody drug conjugate trastuzumab deruxtecan has actually been shown to improve outcomes and survival for this small subset of triple negative breast cancers that have very low HER2 expression. I think this is where we're at when we think about precision medicine and how to approach triple negative disease. So if an individual walked into the clinic today, um, I would ask a few different things. I would ask, first of all, is there pdl one expression in the tumor? Um, does the triple negative disease actually overexpress these biomarkers? And if so, then using um, immunotherapies such as pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy is typically the first approach when we think about how to, how to treat a patient. The next would be looking at genomic signatures, and that would include BRCA testing. We mentioned that BRCA1 and 2 genes, these are genes that are crucial in homologous recombination repair of DNA. And in individuals with BRCA deficient cells, um, DNA repair is dependent on the PARP protein. Um, inhibition of this with a drug called PARP inhibitors um, can actually induce synthetic lethality and impact the way that these cells grow. So if patients are not eligible for immunotherapy, um, it's important to look at whether or not they have a, a BRCA mutation and may be eligible for PARP inhibitors. Following that, I think it's important to look at genomic signatures and whether there's low expression of HER2. As I mentioned, um, historically, we would have called these tumors um, HER2 negative, but by special immunohistochemistry staining, we can see low levels of expression, which is in a small subset of triple negative tumors. And for patients with low levels of HER2 expressions, they may be candidates for trastuzumab deruxtecan. For those without any HER2 expression, um, we typical, typically will recommend sacatuzumab govotecan as the next line of therapy. And I think following this, it's really not clear 
um, what is the next line of therapy um, that an individual um, should be on. Um, typically, we'll talk about different chemotherapies. For example, an individual um, may benefit from a platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, sometimes the decisions about which types of chemotherapy to use is dependent upon what somebody's had previously. Um, for example, if an individual's had anthracyclines previously, we typically will not retreat them with anthracyclines again. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that the landscape for triple negative breast cancer has really changed where we are looking at uh, genomics, we are looking at different biomarkers in the blood and on tumor expressions to really see whether we can use these targeted therapies as opposed to just systemic chemotherapies. So I look forward uh, to seeing what more new news comes out as we think about how to incorporate biomarkers um, and the order of how we treat patients when they're on, on treatment. So thank you for having me today, uh, Dr. Messer. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Blaze. That was just a superb presentation, again, stellar. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, so um, our, our participants are already queuing up with questions, so terrific. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Kamal um, Abu Hussein. And Dr. Hussein is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School, Rowan University, Adjunct Assistant Professor MD Anderson Cancer Center, Department of Breast Medical Oncology. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing suggestions to prevent and manage treatment side effects, neuropathy, discomfort, and pain, and key questions to ask your healthcare team, including pain management to improve your quality of life. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for allowing me to speak about this uh, very important topic. And uh, first of all, I would like to start off by saying that one major difference when we are treating patients with early stage or locally advanced breast cancer uh, that is aiming eventually at curing the disease compared to the palliative treatment that we offer our patients with metastatic breast cancer is the length or duration of the treatment plan. So in most cases, the treatment is expected to be ongoing all the time to have good control over the disease, and that makes it really important to focus on keeping side effects to a minimum, if possible, and in the same time, also providing patients with the most effective treatments uh, that are available to control their disease. So in other words, I would say that the time uh, that is spent in treatment for metastatic disease is um, really focused on quality of life. Uh, so I would also like to say that even though we are going to discuss some of the very common side effects and hopefully provide some information on how to best deal with those symptoms and understand them better, but the key message here is communicating with your healthcare team, which includes your treating oncologists, your oncology nurses, the social workers, the palliative care team. This is really very crucial as each one of them could play an important part in taking care of, um, of you and hopefully help you improve the overall quality of life and your well-being during this treatment journey. So some of the symptoms um, might not be very clear when the patient presents initially with those um, complaints, and um, there are some areas of overlap that could look similar. And an example is a patient who is feeling extremely fatigued versus somebody who is in pain. 
And some of those symptoms are going to be temporary, only at the start of a new therapy, and then hopefully they will get better over time, while others are going to be lingering on or longer lasting. And this is really important to discuss things with the care team and uh, see if those symptoms would lead to adjustment in the doses, maybe giving you longer breaks from treatment, or even switching to different medications with the goal of minimizing the impact of those symptoms on your um, day-to-day life. Also, keeping a journal to track when a side effect happens, what strategies have you used to manage it, and whether it's helping or not. Uh, this would all make it easier uh, for your care team to know exactly what is happening with you. So some examples of side effects. First, let's talk about um, negative side effects on the heart. So some of the treatments that we use for breast cancer could have a negative impact on the power of the heart muscle, and they can lead to a problem called congestive heart failure. And the chemotherapy class that is famous for having that as a side effect is called the anthracyclines. And typically, the way that we monitor the heart function is by ordering an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart, at the beginning of treatment, and then it could be repeated periodically either based on symptoms or, for example, in case of the HER2-directed therapies, we would normally obtain that every three months. You should also let your doctor know if you experienced any shortness of breath, any irregular heartbeat or chest pain. Um, And there is a specialty of uh, cardiologists. They're called cardio-oncologists that we normally work with to modify some of the medications and closely monitor our patients to protect their heart. Uh, Hair loss is another very common and unfortunate side effect from chemotherapy that could negatively impact a lot of patients during the journey of treating their disease. So uh, it has to do with your physical identity. And um, granted, this is not going to impact everybody to the same extent. Some patients view it as a minor annoyance, while others view it as a major concern because it's a very obvious treatment impact that they have to share with the outside world. And uh, there are many options to deal with uh, losing one's hair, including wearing a wig, wearing a hat, or putting on a headscarf. But some women prefer not to cover their scalp with anything at all during the treatment. Uh, There's, of course, uh, the option of using um, scalp cooling, which is um, an option that offers the possibility of maintaining your hair, or most of it, while being treated and I have to say that this is um, having variable differences in levels of success with the use of different regimens of chemotherapy. Uh, Now, with some treatment choices, patients do not completely lose their hair, but they do experience noticeable thinning in their hair, and we always advise patients to use a mild shampoo and use it less often, Uh, use a soft brush, be gentle when they're brushing their hair, avoid any excessive um, pulling, when they're styling their hair or they're using a blow dryer or even use a blow dryer less often. Another side effect is something called hand foot syndrome, also referred to as palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia. And that uh, presents itself with uh, some redness, swelling, tenderness, and sometimes even peeling in the skin of the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. And this is a famous side effect for an oral chemotherapy called capecitabine or Zolotus. And it could range from very mild redness to sometimes very painful state. 
that might make it difficult for the patient to use their hands properly or be able to walk properly. And so it's important to notify your oncologist if you start developing that side effect so that they can modify the dose or give you maybe longer breaks between one chemotherapy treatment cycle and the next. And it is important to protect your hands and feet from any um, chemicals or irritants or harsh soaps or any significant friction. So we talk to patients about using moisturizers, soft gloves and socks, and it could also be helpful in severe cases to use um, cold uh, packs wrapped in a towel around the area that is inflamed. Another problem is mucositis, and that refers to the inflammation of the inner lining of the mouth where the patient could even develop ulcers on the lips or the inner cheeks and gums and even in the back of the throat. And it could lead to quite a significant discomfort whenever we try to eat or drink anything. And the best way to take care of these symptoms is using a mouth rinse with a mixture of water and salt or baking soda and drinking plenty of fluid. Uh, we also discuss with patients avoiding any spicy food and trying to eat a soft diet that is easy to chew and maybe uh, using a straw to drink fluid. Uh, there are some medications that could be applied directly on top of the ulcers, or your doctor can prescribe a pain-relieving mouthwash like magic mouthwash. Um, also, the whole issue of neutropenia, a very common side effect, of course, and um, the meaning of that word is lowering of one's white blood cells, especially a subtype called the neutrophils. And those cells are needed to fight off bacterial infections. So when patients receive chemotherapy, they decrease the number of the neutrophils, which could open the door to developing infections and fevers, which is considered an emergency in the world of oncology. So developing a fever when you're receiving chemotherapy is one of the instances where you have to reach out to your provider's office right away so they can arrange for you to be properly assessed either in the office or can be sent straight to the hospital for proper evaluation. And normally what happens is trying to identify any underlying source of infection and treating that if necessary. And uh, during the initial evaluation uh, of patients and educating them about chemotherapy, we talk about neutropenic precautions and the importance of washing one's hands properly avoiding crowded places, sick people, making sure that they wear masks and maintain their social distancing and eating properly cooked food. Um, the GI uh, side effects, including, of course, nausea and vomiting, are among the first symptoms that come to mind when discussing chemotherapy. And usually when we are prescribing a chemotherapy agent that has a high level of inducing nausea, we would give patients anti-nausea medications preemptively before the chemotherapy is administered. And that hopefully lessens the chances significantly of them developing that side effect from the start. And we also prescribe as needed anti-nausea medications to be used at home. Uh, we talk to patients about choosing plain foods such as toast, pasta, broth, and uh, cereal, and avoid uh, any heavy, greasy foods. But again, this is one of the things uh, where keeping a diary to discuss with your doctor about the patterns of the nausea and vomiting, which may, might be helpful in modifying your treatment plan and hopefully lessening the incidence of those symptoms happening moving forward. Uh, pain is a commonly encountered symptom throughout the journey of treating metastatic breast cancer. 
And this could be a symptom related either to the cancer itself in the breast and the lymph nodes or the spread of the cancer to areas in the body like the bones or, uh, or the spine in the back. Also, it might be related to a medication side effect. So previously, we talked about the mouth sores, which um, can lead to severe pain in the mouth. We talked about the hand-foot syndrome that is um, also quite bothersome. We talked about, uh, or actually, we'll talk about in a little bit, um, the chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, which is uh, tingling and numbness that can happen as a side effect of chemotherapy. And this could be quite painful. Uh, this is an area where I value the input from my colleagues from um, palliative care and pain management tremendously. And patients could benefit from over-the-counter medications like Tylenol, Aleve, steroids, uh, prescription of pain medications like opiates, also some medications um, like the antidepressant and anti-seizure medications, such as gabapentin, also known as Neurontin, could be um, options. Uh, there is definitely a great role for medical marijuana here, um, and uh, this could help alleviate the pain, along with other interventions like acupuncture and meditation and relaxation techniques. Um, when the bones are involved with the cancer as a site of disease spread, this could be a critical point that has to be assessed closely, and we have to see if it is um, at a point that is prone to developing a fracture where the patient should be referred for an evaluation either by uh, ortho-oncology, which is the, the bone specialty or orthopedics, or radiation oncology. Um, also, uh, when we are getting chemotherapy and uh, using growth factor that is um, given to take care of the neutropenia or the lower white blood cell count, there is associated bone pain that could be quite severe. So to reduce risk of developing a fracture secondary to a cancer spreading to the bones, your doctor might be uh, talking to you about a bone-modifying agent like the class of drugs known as bisphosphonates or some targeted agents like denosumab, and this could strengthen the bones and protect them from developing a fracture. Uh, we also discuss with patients uh, supplements like vitamin D and calcium and practicing weight-bearing exercises along with strength and resistance training exercises. Um, there is a lot of symptoms, really, and I am so worried about uh, going over my time, which I, I think I already have, but uh, I'll talk about a couple more symptoms, and then I will stop. Um, neuropathy from chemotherapy, uh, so this is, as we said, the tingling and numbness, and sometimes the pain that most commonly happens in the tips of the fingers and toes while the patients are receiving cytotoxic chemotherapy and it could impair the patient's ability to have normal sensations or even have good control over their movements. And um, the group of chemotherapy agents that are notorious for causing that are called, are called uh, taxanes. So it's really important when you're receiving that to continue to follow up closely with your doctor, tell them if you develop any neuropathy, uh, tell them what the intensity is like, does it come and go, or is it persistent? And uh, modifications of the chemotherapy dosing, uh, getting longer breaks could be really quite helpful. Uh, we use medications like gabapentin or Lyrica, some steroids, and medical marijuana and opiates to alleviate that. There are a lot of other symptoms like nail and skin changes, which is not an uncommon side effect. And this could range just from dry, itchy, red skin. Sometimes it's um, up to a level of peeling of the skin or developing a skin rash. 
the nails could have some discoloration, they could become brittle, and the nail cuticle becomes tender. Um, and we talk to patients about moisturizing their skin with a gentle lotion and protecting the skin also from direct uh, sun exposure, keeping their nails clean and trimmed and protecting their hands when they're um, doing household chores or yard work by wearing gloves. Uh, sleep disorders like insomnia and fatigue, uh, they are a big thing during massage treatment. And uh, feeling tired even with um, adequate sleep could be due to multiple factors from the journey of the treatment to a metastatic disease or um, we, we see also medication side effects and ongoing pain, hot flashes, neuropathy, and others. Um, I will stop here. Um, there are others like uh, chemo brain and sexual side effects. Uh, there are uh, other side effects, including um, diarrhea and um, also the emotional impact of being diagnosed with, uh, with breast cancer and fear of disease progression, which could be quite stressful. Um, so at this point, I will stop and uh, back to you, Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. That was very comprehensive, and these are really very, um, these are the issues that people struggle with, and so I think that um, giving people a lot of tips about how to manage them, how to work with the healthcare team, different members of the teams that could help. Very important. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So anything that anyone has other, further questions about this, we'll have that during the Q&A. But you did a, a yeoman's job in covering a lot of these topics. Thank you. Um, and a stellar presentation. And our next speaker is Ms. Haley Dinneman. And Ms. Dinneman is a lawyer. She's co-founder and executive director of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And Ms. Dinneman will, and she is a, a partner on today's program, and, on this, and actually she is responsible for a number of the Triple Negative programs that we've been offering um, throughout the fall um, and into next year as well. Um, and she'll be discussing Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation's free programs, and we'll acknowledge the Triple Negative Helpline um, which, um, following Ms. Dinneman, Ms. Fortune will discuss in more detail. But I'm just delighted to have Ms. Dinneman on the call today, and I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Dinneman. So much, Carolyn, for that kind introduction. Um, thank you also to my fellow speakers for the excellent presentations, to our sponsors, and of course to all of you listening today. Today's teleconference is one of many pro programs offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. All our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the triple negative community, from patients to survivors to caregivers and loved ones. Today, I'd like to highlight a few of our offerings. First, we have many TNBC-specific educational brochures and fact sheets that are available in print or also as free downloads from our website. Our popular materials were developed with input from members of our TNBC community, as well as esteemed medical experts in the area of TNBC. Like all of our other educational materials, these brochures have special sections addressing issues of particular interest to women living with metastatic triple negative disease. These materials also address topics of particular interest to certain groups within our TNBC community, including those with BRCA mutations, those with early stage diagnoses, and African American women. We work hard to make sure that every member of our TNBC community can find relevant information and practical guidance in these materials, so I hope you'll use them to your benefit. Our website, tnbcfoundation.org, 
offers two free and TNBC-specific clinical trials matching services that we're told are much easier to navigate than other portals. One is specific to clinical trials for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Our website has a constantly updated TNBC news section and a favorite of our community are online discussion forums. The forums, as well as our two private TNBC Foundation Facebook groups, allow you to easily connect with thousands of women who are living with triple negative breast cancer any time of the day or night. Our community members use the forums and private Facebook groups to ask questions about treatment, about how to manage side effects, and so much more. But most importantly, our online forums and groups offer consistent support. You can even join the discussion forums anonymously if you prefer. These online resources are here to help you and to remind you that you're not alone. While the TNBC Foundation normally makes every effort to meet you in person, these past couple of years have forced us to make some adjustments for everyone's safety. But these challenges have also given way to some amazing new virtual programs. We have three regularly scheduled online Zoom meetups for our TNBC community, Metastatic Mondays, Tuesdays with TNBC Friends, and Thriver Thursdays. These online support groups have allowed us to connect as a community throughout the pandemic, and even now that things are going back to normal, our Zoom meetups continue to offer incredible support to the many, of women, to the many women who join us monthly to connect, to share their experiences, and to build friendships. You can sign up for our next meetups on tnbcfoundation.org. The information is right on our homepage with the next Metastatic Monday meetup taking place on Monday, November 7th at 7 p.m. Eastern. To all of you who participated in our annual virtual 5K this past weekend, thank you. It was a wonderful way to connect. Uh, we are planning a variety of programs surrounding the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in December. For those of you who will not be attending the symposium in person, we'll be taking you along with us virtually so that you can learn about new and emerging TNPC research. It's going to be a great experience, and I hope you'll join us. If you follow us on Facebook or visit our website, you'll get regular updates and be able to register for these and all of our other upcoming programs. In the meantime, we look forward to connecting with you on social media, by phone, or online at tnbcfoundation.org. So once again, thank you for joining us, and now I'll turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Dinneman. And you really, you can sense uh, Ms. Dinneman's great passion and her great dedication and all of the wonderful programs that the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation offers. So please, if you're not already using them, please do use them. And you'll, at the end of today's program, well, actually probably tomorrow, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation, which is an evaluation of the program, but we'll also give you all the resources that we mentioned during the program with the contact information, everything you need to be able to connect. So thank you so much. Um, and um, thanks so much, Ms. Dillon, for everything you do. And our next speaker is... Um, Ms. Samantha Fortune, and she is an oncology social worker and the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator. And um, Ms. Fortune will be addressing practical strategies to cope with metastatic triple negative breast cancer, finding the financial, emotional, and social supports to cope, and triple negative breast cancer foundations, free helpline and services. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As mentioned, my name is Samantha Fortune, and I am the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator, as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. My role includes working with both women diagnosed with metastatic triple negative breast cancer and their families, as well as developing programs and initiatives 
for a women's cancer department. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care have partnered together to ensure that those diagnosed with TMBC have access to free psychosocial services and support. There are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that could be addressed through psychosocial support services, including making informed decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, as mentioned earlier, fertility options, and communication with one's medical team. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation has also generously funded the TNBC Helpline, which provides callers with access to comprehensive services. Some of the services the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care provide include resource navigation services, counseling, education workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. By calling the TNBC helpline, individuals are connected to an oncology social worker who is aware of the physical, emotional, and practical challenges that may arise with diagnosed with a metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Um, individuals, individuals diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer may choose to supplement existing social work networks by joining a soy point group or engaging in counseling services. Many hospitals, treatment teams, um, sorry, treatment centers, I should say, and nonprofit organizations offer these supportive services as well. Um, joining a support group in a particular can offer the chance for metastatic triple negative breast cancer patients to speak with one another, gather information, and provide support. Cancer Care offers both metastatic and TMBC specific national online support groups, which are moderated by our oncology social workers. Such support groups aim to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of hope and empowerment, provide practical information about treatment and resources, and address ways to communicate with one's medical team. You can register for an online support group through um, our website at cancercare.org, and you'd hit the Our Services option and then hit the Support Group option. Individuals who may experience may also experience some practical and like financial concerns through their treatment as well. So if you are encountering some financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care um, offers a resource navigation program, which offers a short-term strength-based approach service to patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A trained specialist will work with the client in connecting them with resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning more about the services the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation provide or Cancer Care provides, I encourage you to call the TMBC helpline at 877-880-8622. Our oncology social workers can share additional information about our services and can help you explore and connect you to other resources, including the support groups I mentioned or the financial assistance resources. It has, such, it has been such a pleasure being part of this workshop. Thank you for your attention, and now I'll turn the workshop back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune. That was wonderful, just a stellar presentation and really letting people know about all the resources that they can access um, for help and coping. Um, and now we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is a question for, um, for Dr. Um, Lathrop. If, if a triple negative breast cancer has multiple metastatic sites, should genomic testing be done on all locations, liver, lungs, bones? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So 
this has been looked at in the research setting where we do look at um, biopsies from different, multi, you know, different organ sites. And when you do genomic profiling on those tumors like next generation sequencing, you actually do get some variation. So we know, you know, the, the nature of metastatic triple negative cancer is that it has a high mutational burden and you are going to get some variation between uh, different metastatic sites and even within one metastatic site, if you do single uh, tumor cell sequencing, you're, you're going to get some variation. So that said, we have to think about, you know, how do we apply that practically to the patient? And obviously, we can't go um, by having, you know, multiple sites because there's risk with biopsies. And um, so what generally most people would say is to biopsy the site that's the clinically most accessible with the least amount of potential um, harm from, from the biopsy. So biopsying a liver a lesion is usually a little easier than, let's say, a lung lesion. Um, but in that set, as far as bone, we, we try to stay away from a bone biopsy if we have another uh, site because the processing to actually remove the calcified bone away from the tumor can damage the sample and make the sample less accurate. Um, I think really where we're going, though, is more of these liquid, what we would call liquid biopsies. So drawing blood, looking for specific tumor uh, DNA that's circulating. Uh, the idea there is that might be the more dominant clone if we're finding it circulating in the, um, in the bloodstream. And also it gives us potentially a more, you know, um, at that moment what we're seeing as far as the clone and then we can compare that as we, as we move through because doing serial biopsies for a patient can be quite difficult. Excellent. Thank you so much. And for Dr. Blaz, um, so Keytruda, um, is that used now for early stage triple negative breast cancer? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so last summer, actually, uh, Keytruda was approved in the neoadjuvant setting for patients with stage uh, typically stage two and three breast cancer. There's still a lot of discussion in stage one whether or not that should be used up front but it is approved in that setting alongside chemotherapy based on one of the keynote trials. Um, in that study, they used carboplatin and taxol with Keytruda. Then the patients went on to receive adriamycin and cytoxin with Keytruda. And then Keytruda was actually given after surgery as well for an additional nine cycles um, every three weeks. Um, in some of the other current clinical trials, like the ISPY2 neoadjuvant clinical trial, um, immunotherapy is actually different forms of immunotherapy are being studied in um, across triple negative breast cancer, and there's a lot of discussion of do you need it after surgery or with the anthracycline if patients have an excellent response up front. Um, but I would say, yes, it's approved in that setting. Um, and in the, then in the metastatic setting, we're really using it predominantly in those individuals with overexpression of that PDL1 marker. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, question? Um, sorry. 
So um, here's a question that's for, for Dr. Um, Hussein. Interested in finding out about care after chemo and mastectomy in the first year of diagnosis, what to do? What do I do next? Um, and I guess so, it's a general question. It's a really a personal question, so really to just address it generally in a general way. Correct. So just to clarify the question, so somebody who had chemotherapy and uh, they underwent mastectomy, uh, so mm -hmm. I assume uh, the question is referring to somebody with early stage breast cancer, not metastatic breast cancer. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, this becomes a really very important uh, point, especially in the triple negative setting, where patients, after they finish their initial treatment and hopefully achieve cure, usually the first one to three years are the years that we see the most um, incidence of recurrence. So the main goal of uh, the close follow-up with the healthcare team uh, and proper exam and addressing any concerning symptoms. So I talk to my patients about any new nodules, any lumps, any masses and anywhere in their body. Uh, we also talk about any new symptoms that do not sit right with them. And I think the key word here is the symptoms could be uh, a wide variation. They could be simple symptoms like back pain or headaches, which we all get every now and then. But the key word is really a persistent symptom that does not go away and could potentially get worse. So I tell my patients it's better be safe than sorry and contact me with those symptoms if they linger on so that we can do the proper um, uh, proper investigation and rule out any cancer recurrence. Excellent. And um, Ms. Fortune, if you could comment just on, you know, the um, how people access a support group at Cancer Care, how they do that through triple yeah. breast cancer. No problem. So um, like I was mentioning earlier, on our website, we have like a section um, on the left-hand side that's our services. And then there's going to be a tab for online for support groups. And you would click the online support group. And under there, there's a list of different support groups we offer. Um, there's one for metastatic breast cancer. There's one for triple negative breast cancer, um, different groups. So I always encourage people to look at all the groups options and then you pick the one you feel is going to be the best fit and then there's going to be an application online that you'd complete and once you complete it you'd get an email and a link to that support group and then you can go right in and post what you feel and then also read other people's responses and like mentioned earlier a social worker is monitoring it so a social worker will always be posting like at least once to twice a week as well to provide you with support and you can ask questions get emotional support and feedback in that nature. Excellent. And I just want to mention to everybody that we do have some upcoming programs that you should all be aware of. We have a um, next Wednesday, and you'll be getting information about this on November 2nd, we are doing a program specifically on clinical trials for triple negative breast cancer, and we're also doing a program on November 16th um, on caregiving for people with triple negative breast cancer. And Samantha, do you want to comment on just the, the, the number of people that we see who are caregivers um, for support? Oh, honestly, I would say our caregiver support groups is, tends to be more busier than the patient support groups. So it's a it's a much needed um, attention. Just because you are a caregiver doesn't mean that you don't deserve attention and support. So please take advantage of those as well. Excellent. And um, and there's just one last question, um, and to Dr. Um, 
um, blahs, um, metastatic TNBC with brain mets, PDL1 negative, genomic testing negative, any open trials, any novel treatments um, that are available? And again, this is a very individual question, so if you could address in a general way, that might be helpful to all of our participants. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I don't know if I'm going to remember all the markers that you said, but PDL1 negative, I think you had mentioned. And yes, yes, brain metastases are, are brain metastases are a, a unique setting, and I think I would um, I would go through those markers the same way again. So is is there a BRCA mutation? Remembering also, as we talked about with liquid biopsies, that some tumors actually become BRCA-like, meaning the individual themselves may not actually be a carrier for BRCA, but the tumor's behaving like that, in which case sometimes drugs like PARP inhibitors may be um, helpful. Um, the antibody drug conjugate I mentioned, trastuzumab deruxtecan for those with low HER2 expression, does have some CNS penetration when we look at um, trials in the HER2-positive patients, so that is potentially an option. And then there are some systemic chemotherapies that do have more um, penetration in and around the brain, such as capcitabine or oral zolota. Um, there are, as far as clinical trials for brain metastases, I would tell you that there, con there continues to be some um, looking at small molecules as well as different radiation techniques. And that will kind of vary depending on whether there's multiple sites of brain involvement or an isolated uh, tumor. Excellent. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. And I also want to thank um, all of our participants for asking such great questions. And I do want to comment that we do have many quest more questions in queue, so I want to comment on the whole issues of these questions. For those of you who had the opportunity to ask a question, for those of you who have a question that you would like to ask but didn't get a chance to ask, and for those of you who are thinking of a question, we will ask all of you to go back to your treating healthcare team because they do know you the best. So we're providing information that is general in nature because we don't know all the specific details of each of you on the call. Um, and your healthcare team does know that. So please take the information you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team so that they can actually address your questions again. And we hope that being on this call today, you have gained some information that better informs the questions you ask or allows you to feel more confident in asking the questions. And ask your questions as often as you need to until you get the answers you need. And also you do have, of course, the resources of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and, of course, of Cancer Care. So you do have, and you're getting that information from us. Um, most importantly, I would not want any one of you to leave this call feeling that you're alone. We do have a whole bunch of programs coming up on Triple Negative Breast Cancer, so please, there are more programs that you'll be getting information about. Um, and you also can participate in all of the support programs that we have and all the things that Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation offers. So um, although it is very tempting to feel alone, and particularly in the climate that we live in today, we also want you to know that you have communities of support that you can take advantage of, and we hope you will take advantage of them. They're free, and they can be very helpful. So um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.